Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Hey everyone, welcome back to part two of the best of 2023 on the Power Hour podcast. So today we're going to hear from Sarah Knight. Sarah's advice is actionable, motivational and no nonsense. Just the kind of advice that I enjoy. We're also going to hear in this episode from Dr. Pooja Lakshmin. And she and I talked earlier this year all about real self-care. Not the kind of self-care that involves candles and face masks. Real self-care. What it really means to prioritise yourself and your needs. You're also going to hear in this episode from my good friend, Dr. Hazel Wallace, and we discussed the female factor, female hormones, and how the more knowledge we have about our own bodies, the more empowered we can be to make the best choices, to maximize and get the most out of the different phases of our cycle. And last but not least, Dr. Alex George, one of the UK's favorite doctors, he and I sat down together in the studio in Shoreditch to discuss motivation mental health and gratitude. So let's dive in to this week's episode. The new book is what we're going to talk about today and even the term adulting. I feel like a lot of people now are familiar with this term, this idea that, you know, what well, actually being an adult doesn't come with a manual and there's all these different things to navigate and it's really challenging. So I'd love to dive into it. I was really lucky to receive an early PDF copy of the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. Thank you. I kind of just want to dive in straight at the top, really. So the first thing that I highlighted was so that the MO, so you talk about three words, maturity, responsibility, and accountability. Now, when I read that, I think I'll be honest, at first I wasn't, maybe growing up, I wasn't aware that these things were optional. However, when you meet people, <laughs> when you meet people in the real world, and I'm sure we all have met people who, for whatever reason, they seem to think these things are optional and they don't take any responsibility or accountability for their actions, their behavior, their words. It just is bizarre. So I guess, why is it important for us to start there? Why did you start the book? Why is that the MO? Why is it important for us to start with these three words? Well, I like to take the opportunity in all of my books to boil things down to their most essential ingredients because I want to make it as easy and pleasant as possible for readers to pick up what I'm putting down. So I actually did an anonymous survey before I started writing the book. I had hundreds of people respond to this Google survey about what adulting means to them and what they think are the most important qualities in an, in an adult. And also, I said, think of somebody in your life who you perceive as a big fucking baby. What is it that makes you think that about them? So I had another list going on the other side of all of the qualities that do not make somebody mature, responsible, and accountable. And I sifted through all of that and, of course, my, my life experience up to my 44 years and really tried to boil it down. And I came to these three pillars of adulting. And the other thing that I try to do with all of my books is show people how to develop skills and how to achieve a mindset that will help them do a million different things. So grow the fuck up 
is not a manual for adulting in the sense that I don't take you through the step-by-step process to do your taxes or the step-by-step process to change a tire. What I do is try to explain to you how being overall more mature, more responsible, and more accountable for your actions makes you the kind of person that understands this is what you need to go out and do and makes you the kind of person who's capable of figuring out how to do it. Yeah. And what would you say about these? Some people might think these are just embedded in certain people's personality, right? So they might say, and even I would say, depending on where you're born in terms of, uh, I mean, in terms of whether you have siblings. So if you're the oldest, if you're the middle child, if you're the youngest, I think sometimes people will fall into these roles when it comes to being accountable or being responsible and taking on responsibility. But would you agree in the sense that these are not these are not personality traits or characteristics. These are things that actually we can choose to be intentional about. Oh, absolutely. We can choose and should choose to be intentional about them. And listen, I was very fortunate to be raised by two parents who instilled a lot of these values in me. They were both elementary school teachers for their entire 40-year careers. So, you know, I had somebody who was telling me to mind my manners and telling me to apologize when I did something wrong and clean up after myself. And I'm sure a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. And it's not anybody's fault if the good behavior was not modeled for you from a young age, but it is your responsibility once you are the adult and nobody is legally or morally obligated to take care of shit for you anymore, then it is your responsibility to figure out how to do it for yourself. And so when I say that word responsibility, Yes, there are a lot of people walking among us that are just big fucking babies. They understand the concept of being responsible. They understand the concept of hitting deadlines and being on time and being somebody that their friends and colleagues can rely on. But they just don't care. They don't want to do it. It's not important to them. And they don't care whose life it messes up along the way, including their own. What this Mm. book does is try to take the theoretical adults who do care, they do want to do well, they wish things were going a little more smoothly for them, and give them the tools with which to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is the total fucking grown up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you mentioned the questions, actually, the questions that you pose as well. And I even just reading those questions and kind of reflecting myself, I found that really, really interesting. And actually, I go as far as to say a little bit emotional, maybe I was just in an emotional mood, but I read those questions and and yeah, I think one the one that was asking me to think about what was the thing that you wish that your parents had taught you or that you wish that I am a parent myself, but that you wish other parents would teach their kids. And so, yeah, I really liked those kind of self-reflective questions. And I think that even just taking the time to sit with these things and think about it is going to inform the way we act and behave. I agree. And that's why one of the very first uh, skills that we get into in the book is self-awareness. And, you know, I think that as part of that pillar of maturity, the first thing you have to be able to do is, is know yourself. You know, you can't go out there in the world and ask for what you want and expect to get what you want and need and communicate effectively to other people if you can't communicate effectively with yourself. And that's where maturity begins. It begins with understanding who you are, what makes you tick, you know, listening to your body and brain when they're trying to tell you something and taking that information in and and then being able to react to it in a, on a full spectrum. And throughout the course of the book, I make the analogy that, you know, an actual baby 
doesn't know anything. They don't even know how their toes work. You know, they, they can't be expected to be mature and responsible, let alone accountable for their behavior. But you, if you're old enough to be reading this book, you can. And one of the things that I think does get neglected in our adult life is that capacity for self-awareness because we feel very reactive. There's a lot going on. There's a lot coming at us. If we're, you know, 20 years old, 23, 25, there's new responsibilities, big responsibilities. The older we get, maybe we become responsible for other baby humans. Um, and sometimes it feels like like we just want to skip over the self-awareness part because we have too much to do. But it's really, really important to start there and to ask yourself honest questions and answer them honestly so that you can go forward in life and get what you want and need. Yeah, I am. I mean, I wrote down self-awareness and underlined it twice to talk to you about because <laughs> I do a lot of keynote speaking and I go and speak to employees of organizations. And one of the questions that I, one of the, the kind of workshops that I do, it's not about like strengths and weaknesses, but more about likes and dislikes. Now in this kind of workshop, I talk about self-awareness. Now I can guarantee if I ask a room of a hundred people to raise your hand, if you think that you are self-aware, how many people do you think raise their hand typically? They all do. I bet. Every single person in the room raises their hand. Now, every time. Now, of course, not everyone can be self-aware, but everybody thinks they are. And I think that's the first problem. If if we could accept, okay, I need to listen to what people are telling me about me. Maybe some of that is true. Maybe that's the first place to start. So how can people, if they think, okay, Adrienne, Sarah, I'm self-aware. Like, I am definitely self-aware. How can they stress test this to figure out if they are? Okay, well, this is kind of silly, but it's a fun thing that my my husband and I did and some friends did when uh, when we were whiling away the time during the pandemic. Uh, there are a lot of internet personality quizzes out there. There's one in particular, and I'll dig up the link for you and send it after, but it in it's like 150 questions, and it's all a sliding scale of, you know, one, I completely disagree, five, I'm in the middle, 10, this is me. And it asks you questions about yourself. And it takes all of this data and crunches it. And at the end, it tells you the fictional character that you are most like. And it gives wow. you your top 10 matches and the percentage match. So when I took this, this test, my top match at the time, this was a television show I had never seen. So I didn't really understand what my top match meant. But I was self, self-professedly 97% match to the Dowager Countess of Downton Abbey. And when I told my husband that this was what I got on the quiz, he said, wow, not only do you know yourself really well, but you're willing to admit a lot of things about yourself <laughs> that some people might not think were accurate. So when my brother took the quiz and my husband took it, and my husband's answers I did not think were really that matched up with him. So what we did was we started swapping. And so like I took the quiz on my mom's behalf to see what what I came up with for her because I thought it was a more accurate representation of who she is than maybe who she thought she was. And so this is actually kind of a fun thing to do. You don't have to do it with a hundred question quiz. I just took another one on which Ted Lasso character you are. And by the way, I am Roy Kent uh, and my husband is Keely. <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, it's it's a fun way to you take you take the test. You can decide whether or not you think it suits you. But have somebody else take it on your behalf and see what they get. And maybe that's closer to how you present to the world. And if they don't match up, maybe you need to do a little work on self-awareness. 
2020, in the UK's estimated wellness market size reached £12.4 billion. So this kind of tells me two things, I suppose, from a business perspective, the businesswoman head on, you know, I do a lot of brand consultancy and it's quite clear to me that this industry is booming. It's probably increased in the last two years. And of course, some businesses and some brands and some organizations are making a lot of money selling us wellness. Now, I also think what it tells me is that people want to spend their money on things that they think and feel are going to make them feel good, even if it is short, short fix, short term. So I suppose, you know, when you mentioned that it's like consumer based and it's this idea that like, of course, like, you know, a scented candle and a bubble bath, these things are not going to solve the root of the problem. And I think the downside of this is, of course, yeah, those fads and quick fixes and those kind of sometimes unhealthy and harmful products that were being sold. People might think, oh, this is going to, uh, yeah, this is what I need. This is the next thing that's going to help me to change my life or to feel better. But then I I suppose the upside, if, if there is one, eternal optimist that I am, is that if some of these products, if some of these services, if this kind of shift and focus to well-being is encouraging people to move more or to sleep more or to make some kind of positive change to their diet or their lifestyle, like, you know, I've read a lot of stats around Gen Z saying that they don't drink alcohol, like, you know, Gen Z and Gen Alpha apparently drink a lot less alcohol and they're much more focused on spending their money on experiences and travel rather than products. So I think there's probably, you know what I mean? Like nothing's binary, like all bad or all good but I think where the problem potentially is is that it's often focused on the individual to say okay you have to you know figure it out yourself you know try these things do this thing like and we almost want firstly quick solutions so something that oh I tried that for a week it didn't work you know we want things to just be really quick and also this idea that a lot of these things are let's be honest expensive they're not accessible to a lot of people so yeah there's a lot to unpack in there but what would you say about I suppose the downside and the upside if there is any and how we can kind of I suppose yeah navigate the the fine line between the two I really like, Adrian, that you use that word binary because I think that really gets to the crux of what I'm trying to do with real self-care. I'm not trying to demonize wellness. And, and actually, chapter two of the book really dives into sort of the seduction that I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And, and I am framing these, quote unquote, faux self-care solutions of like the bubble bath or whatever it is. I'm calling it faux self-care, not because it's bad but because it is temporary and it's something outside of you. Mm. And in chapter two, I talk about faux self-care as a coping mechanism and go into the psychological reasons for why we really feel like we need that bubble bath or why we really feel like we want to go on the juice cleanse or whatever it is. For some folks, it's like you need that escape, right? You just need a second not to think, not to worry, not to have to deal with anything else. Um, Or maybe you're somebody who's kind of motivated by achievement or uh, productivity and efficiency, right? And so we turn to these different uh, coping mechanisms as a tool in in that moment that will quickly take away some of those difficult feelings, whether it's Mm. stress, whether it's low mood, whether it's anxiety. But what wellness has not done so far, so wellness has given us tools. And and Mm -hmm. like you said, for many folks, those tools are not accessible because they're too expensive. But wellness still has not given us principles or perspective. 
And so that's mm. what I'm doing in real self-care. I'm saying, okay, here's these tools, yes. But the reason that the tools feel so burdensome is because we're not doing that internal work on the principles to actually understand why. Why do I need the yoga class? What is the yoga class actually doing for me? So I like to say, you know, one person's yoga class can actually be just completely performative because, you know, they're worried about, you know, whether they can hold a headstand <laughs> or not. And they want to make sure that they have like the right, you know, leggings or joggers, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that's performative. Whereas another person's yoga class could be real self-care because that person is doing the hard work of having you know, the tough conversation with their partner to say, Hey, I actually, I really, for my mental health, I need to go to yoga once a week and doing mm -hmm. the decision-making of how to make that happen, being compassionate with themselves around giving themselves permission. Right. So in that circumstance, yoga is actually really deeply nourishing. So it's less about the thing and it's more about the process that you take to get there. And so mm. my takeaway or my whole kind of thesis with this book is that real self-care is a decision-making process. It's not yes. actually just one thing that you check off the list. No, it's just something that you need to bring to everything that you're doing in your life. Oh, absolutely. And I hate to use the word intentional because I feel like it's become <laughs> almost like, you know, it's like a tattoo now. Yes. But I do think that's exactly what you described is that, you know, having understanding the why, why am I doing this? And if you can keep that front and center in your mind, then hopefully like the perfect example that you gave you know, the, the reason for doing something and the reason for, uh, I suppose, even having the cultivating the discipline or, or creating the time, because, you know, time is something that I talk about a lot on the show, hence the power hour. And often people say they're time poor and they don't have the time to prioritize these things. And I think, yeah, the real word for me is just being intentional because it, it will require discipline. It will require some level of setting boundaries to create the space and time for you to do these things. So with that in mind, what are some other, you know, we kind of talked about what self-care isn't. What are some other I suppose things we should be considering, thinking about, practicing to to really discover what true self-care is. Yes. So in the book, I lay out four principles, right? Because we're talking about principles, not tools. And so the principles are number one, learning to set boundaries and dealing with guilt. Because we all know that especially if you're a woman, if you're a mother, if you're a parent or a caregiver, guilt is the first thing that comes up when you start setting boundaries. So that is step one. Step two is developing compassionate self-talk. So really looking at the conversations that you're having with yourself. And I will say for this principle, this one is the hardest for me. Um, I'm always somebody, I've always been someone who kind of rolls my eyes a bit when anyone says compassion, like it feels very woo woo to me. And, you know, oh, like you're snap. letting yourself <laughs> off the hook. And um, that's not, not the self-compassion I'm talking about. In real self-care, I'm talking about self-compassion in the way that Dr. Kristen Neff, who is a psychologist who's really the foremost researcher in, on self-compassion, um, frames it, which is psychological self-compassion, looking at having new and different conversations with yourself um, so it's about your relationship with yourself, essentially. And then the third principle is getting clear on your values. And I've created a, an exercise called the Real Self-Care Compass. And this is 
how you get to your why. Again, Adrian, like we were just saying, like your why, the reason why you're doing all the things on your to-do list, the reason why you're spending hours chauffeuring your kids around to all their activities, it, it doesn't, it feels different when you know why you're doing it. We can mm. dig into this a little bit more, but like the why and the meaning, like that's the antidote to burnout, right? Like really understanding your your specific values and your values are going to be different than your best friend's values or your parents' values or, you know, and your partner's values. they're going to change over time. Exactly. They're going to change over time. Yeah, sorry. I think that's the part often people miss because whenever I hear people talk about, okay, discover your why or figure out your values, it's kind of this idea that it's going to, you're going to find it. You're going to, you know, carve it in, in stone and then you're going to have it. And that is it. That's your value. And like everything has to be, you know, keep that front and center. But I think the most important thing is, of course, we have to commit to something, but then also being open to changing our mind or accepting that maybe in five years time in 10 years time maybe as maybe just one year your values might change and probably have changed and i think when people don't stop to assess that they can kind of just almost become fixated just like keep going on this path and beating the same drum when it's actually yeah they need to kind of revisit that and go is this still what i want yes um so the concept that i keep coming back to in real self-care is it's called psychological flexibility. And this Mm. is a term that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a third wave form of psychotherapy. And essentially it describes what you're talking about, like being flexible with how you engage with your thoughts and your feelings and um, being flexible with your values and understanding that at any given stage of your life, you're all, I think the other piece is like, we all have multiple values. We always, we all have like hundreds of values, right? But the priorities shift, things move up and down the ladder. As I was writing Real Self Care, I was actually, I was going through IVF treatments uh, to get pregnant. And I um, had a miscarriage previously. And because of my history, you know, for a long time, I was like really ambivalent about becoming a mother. I didn't know if that was for me. Um, and then I, I was fortunate and lucky that IVF worked and I got pregnant while I was writing the book. And I talk about this in the book and that in the, the, um, section where I'm writing about values, like I was facing this too, knowing as I was coming up on this precipice of becoming a mother and knowing that my values were going to shift and being scared, right? Because I had built this career as a psychiatrist, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and all of that work was done with the luxury of time and space for myself. And Mm. I was about to come up on this um, huge transition, right? So I think it's like, it's okay to not only, um, I think maybe what I wanna say is that it's like okay to be scared when you're in those transition spaces, when you're in the the in-between space, when you know your values are shifting, but you don't quite yet know what the next thing is. Also. Yeah, absolutely. And also knowing how to prioritize them. Because sometimes, as you said, we all have lots of things that we value. And sometimes when I've talked to people about this before, this the struggle they have is kind of prioritizing because they're like, well, I value my career. I value my family and my relationships. I value uh, experiences and travel. And it's almost, again, this thing of how can people, I think they struggle to think if you, you just got to pick and stick, pick one thing when actually, yeah, I think accepting that sometimes as you described, and also, I mean, my heart was just so filled with 
when you said that you had had successful IVF journey because as someone who's done IVF and knows how challenging that is I was so happy to hear that you said you know <laughs> that you that you were pregnant and that you know congratulations on motherhood um but revisiting this you know values thing yeah just accepting that it's at different times and different stages throughout your life it's okay for your value hierarchy to to change and what's the what's yes. the fourth principle so we have yes. boundaries compassionate self-talk values and the fourth one yes so the fourth one is power but before we dive into that i want to just respond to one thing that you said about values um mm. and and sharing so so a value actually isn't I value my career or my or I value my family? A value is something that you embody. So a value would be um, I value creativity, mm. or I value um, self-expression, or I value um, service. And so so it has to be something that is um, describing a something that you can embody. So. And this is a really important distinction because you can bring the value of, um, let's say, uh, creativity to your career, and you can bring the value of creativity to how you parent, and you can bring the value of creativity to how you spend your discretionary time um, in the little discretionary time that you have. Um, so that's an important distinction, and I think people get easily people often conflate values and goals, right? And so it's mm. important to always remember that a value has to be a descriptor of something that you can embody. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. Um, and for the real self-care compass, it's interesting because the goals are actually secondary. And I was, as I was writing the book, you know, there was many goals that I put on my compass that I didn't get to, but because the value is the thing, right? that's okay. It doesn't mean that you failed, right? When you're following mm. your values, then it can take you in lots of different directions in terms of where you end up. And I know for me, I've always ended up in the most um, fulfilling places when I was less goal oriented. Um, mm. But getting to that last bit, so power is the last principle. And um, really, it's the culmination of all three and get, gets back to the crux of why real self-care is so important and also, I think, revolutionary because we are doing this internal work in the context of oppressive systems. So whether those mm -hmm. systems are, you know, um, capitalism, whether those systems are white supremacy and racism or patriarchy and sexism, the systems, as we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, when I was describing my patients, you know, the system is the problem, but you have to do this internal real self-care work in order to keep yourself whole inside all of these systems. And the reason that I, um, you know, as a woman of color, as an immigrant, um, or as my parents were immigrants, you know, like as this like in acknowledging my place in the world, I think it was really important to me to sort of center the fact that there are so many folks who don't have access to mm -hmm. the resources, to discretionary time, right? To childcare, to all these services that we all know are integral for mental health. So again, if you are somebody that does have some privilege, um, like for example, with my platform, like being a physician and being able to take the risks that I'm able to take, 
that means that you need to pour some of the energy that you have into back into your community, back into helping Mm. others. Like with power comes responsibility, right? And that kind of um, goes back to the roots of real self-care. You know, we all know the Audre Lorde quote about how self-care is self-preservation. And like we have, you know, black queer thinkers to thank for putting self-care in its most powerful form on the Mm. map. Right. And so I think we just have to keep remembering that and not minimize it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The end of December, actually all throughout December, I saw a lot of articles about end of year burnout, especially on LinkedIn. And I heard a lot of friends as well talking about this too. And kind of, I was actually in a sauna. I was, I was in a sauna <laughs> after doing a workout and there was two ladies in front of me. I don't know them, but I they were talking very loudly, which, you know, if you're in a sauna and you're talking loudly, come on. Uh, but they were talking about this, like, oh, you know, a few more days to push through and I've got to get this done. And I've got to get that done. And one of them was a yoga teacher. So she was talking about, oh, I've got this many classes to teach and just kind of she said that her body felt broken she was like my body's exhausted my mind's exhausted I just need a week to just lay under a duvet because I'm so burnt out and I just heard so many people talking about this end of year like dragging themselves to the finish line and surely that's not where we want to end up at the end of the year so if anyone's listening to that and thinking oh my gosh maybe maybe that yoga teacher from the sauna is listening or anyone else (laughs) what could we do and I guess starting now what could we do this year to ensure that we don't make those same mistakes again or fall into those same patterns and same routines that end up just leave us feeling utterly exhausted at the end of the year yeah I come I completely resonate with this and I think our last conversation on this podcast I felt like I was recovering from burnout and I mean even last about two weeks ago you and I had lunch and I still had a bit of a breakdown over kind of past burnout that still I think still takes time to recover from and as someone who's gone through it it's something that I'm really proactively trying to support people from it happening to because it doesn't matter what job you work in or whether you have children or not or whether you work shift work or not we're all at risk of burnout and um, I think the most important thing is having boundaries between your work and your personal life. And that's easier said than done um, because lots of us bring work home with us. Some people work on the weekends or work for themselves. Sometimes we work in really demanding careers that require us to kind of go the extra mile in order for us to climb that ladder. And I definitely have experienced that as someone who worked in medicine um, in a hospital setting where you kind of always have to be pushing to get up um, and continue to progressing. So learning where your boundaries are between work and life is really important. And also early recognition. So if you do feel like, oh, my body's broken, I'm not sleeping, I'm losing compassion, I actually don't enjoy my work anymore, 
they're red flags that you are if not already in burnout and you need to kind of look at what's happening and how you can prioritize your health and when it comes to kind of reviewing your schedule and prioritizing you over your work again I know this is easier said than done and I've got people who will say you know I have to work shift work I have children at home as well so it's much easier for you if you don't have children you work for yourself but I would say you know review your schedule regularly and reduce or eliminate unnecessary things that aren't serving you so maybe it's that you're saying yes to every social engagement but you don't want to do every social engagement or you're trying to achieve too many things at one time and maybe you go through a season of doing one thing and the next season you focus on another thing so you're not overwhelming overwhelming yourself with too many things in your to-do list and on top of all those things like the most important thing is looking after you and that does involve getting enough sleep exercising regularly eating a well-balanced healthy diet and taking time out every single day whether that's for five minutes of journaling or it's a 10 minute coffee with your partner or it's just going out and spending some time in the garden or walking the dog but those little timeouts help to uh, center you and kind of take you away from you know your work day and whatever other stresses are going out and also leaning on your professional and your personal support system be that your colleagues be that your partner, your friends, and putting your hand up when you are struggling and saying, you know, look, I'm in a bit of a tricky situation. I'm finding that I'm really starting to burn out and I just need to kind of get control. And sometimes it's really helpful to just chat it out and someone to say, well, you know, why don't you just do this or look at doing this? And I find that really helpful when I'm having a stressful time, just speaking to my partner about it. And then once I've said out loud, I'm like, oh, that's the solution. I know where what I need to do now. Mm, yeah and also knowing that I think uh, I totally agree when you speak to other people about it it kind of validates it for yourself and also lets them know that you need support because they're Mm. also there maybe in a few weeks time when you're kind of back into it again to kind of give you those reminders and say hey you know maybe let's I don't know just go to bed early or maybe let's not go out to that event as you said and actually you know you said about timeouts you said daily and I think for so many people the idea of having a daily timeout whether it's 10 minutes whether it's a whole power hour it seems impossible you know they look to the future and they say oh I'm going to book you know I've got that week coming week off coming up in however many months and actually I, I completely agree with you that we have to make it regular you can't just keep going and going and going and going and hope that when you have that one week off maybe in May that you're gonna you know it's gonna fix everything I think just trying to even if it's not daily even if it's five days a week four days a week creating mm. some time and space to kind of break it up is is so important yeah absolutely Okay, so hopefully there's some, yeah, got you thinking there about how you're going to approach creating a routine, things that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, exercise, sleep, you know, discussing uh, with, with other people, mindfulness, all these things. It's not that we've never heard them before, but I think it's incredibly important to have reminders. And also, if I need to say it again, Hazel Wallace, Dr. Hazel Wallace, I feel like whenever <laughs> things come from a doctor, it's far more uh, impressive than coming from me. And with that in mind, I, oh my gosh, the next thing that I want to talk to you about is a pretty big topic okay it's huge huge topic and firstly i'll start by saying a big thank you to you dr hazel on behalf of all women and girls 
A personal thank you as someone who has suffered in the past for years with PMS, PMDD, uh, fertility challenges and miscarriage. Uh, I really want to thank you for writing your most recent book, The Female Factor, because as I said, coming from a doctor and seeing the importance and the spotlight and the attention on this topic, which for so long I think has kind of been overlooked it's been people roll their eyes people talk about you know women's problems and women's issues like they talk about it with a whisper voice or they kind of say mm. you know just you know just brush it under the carpet because we don't want to talk about it for lots of different reasons it has been incredibly validating for someone like me with the challenges that I've just listed to read your book so thank you so much oh thank you for saying that like that's exactly um the impact that I wanted to have with the book and I think it you know it's it's a really uniting conversation with with amongst women because it's such a such a taboo topic still like women are still so underserved and overlooked when it comes to health Exactly. And also, I think it's important to to note right now that this podcast, of course, has female and male listeners. Now, I'm sure that when I sometimes I have male guests, sometimes I have female guests, we discuss all different topics from finance to success to physical health to mental health. And it's for everyone and anyone to listen to. Now, this conversation is no different. And I think it's important to highlight that right at the beginning, because sometimes when people talk about the female factor, female health, women's health, men maybe think, well, this conversation's not for me. You know, this isn't about me. It doesn't, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about this stuff. And actually, yeah, it's not for me. So what, what would you say to any male listeners who might think that, yeah, that this conversation is not for them? So the reason I wrote the book is because the male body has historically been the default body in medical research. And we just make the assumption that women are just smaller versions of men. And so this means that women are underserved, undertreated, underdiagnosed in lots of health conditions. And I think it's really easy to make the assumption that um, women's health is just to do with our ovaries and ability to conceive, when actually our health also includes all of the aspects that affect both men and women, our heart health, our gut health, everything, our brain health. And this is why I think the book is so important for not just women or people with menstrual cycles, but both sexes, all genders, because these things impact everyone. And if we're, you know, doing one group of people a disservice when it comes to their health, then it's going to impact other people as well. And, you know, I've got lots of men who buy the book for their partners or they buy it for themselves to learn more about their partners, you know, whether it's supporting them across their menstrual cycle, through the menopause, through pregnancy, and, you know, like so many coaches and PTs who work with women to better understand, you know, how are our hormones affecting our strength and energy levels or our nutritional needs or how we sleep or our mood. And there are so many things that we just don't fully understand or we're just not told about because I don't know about you, but when I learned about puberty and what was going to happen. No one told me that, you know, I was going to feel bloated at this time of the month or my mood might change at this time of the month or I might feel really lethargic or I might feel super energetic. And when I started to really understand that, 
And also, I didn't learn about this in medical school either. You know, this is post, this is postgraduate education, self-directed learning that I had to go about and seek out myself. And as a woman, I found it so empowering and it changed my relationship with my cycle and my hormones. And I no longer just view it as this thing that happens to me, but something that I can live in alignment with now that I understand what's actually happening. I'm conscious we could talk about so many things, Alex, but I do want to talk to you about the new book because you've written another book and uh, the Mind Manual, Mental Fitness Tools for Everyone. And we've started talking a little bit about fitness already. So I guess my first question for the listeners would be if they see the cover, see the title, what is mental fitness? Sure. I mean, I deliberately have used the word mental fitness because um, we often attribute physical health with physical fitness, something that we can work towards, that we can build, that can get better, that can make us stronger, that can actually help us in every area of our life. We literally just talked about that. Mental mental health, mental fitness is no difference. You can work on your mental fitness. You can build it like a muscle. It can get stronger, more powerful, more capable, faster. And the effects are literally life-changing. And I think that's a mistake we really make. I mean, one of the things that I... I just wish we would stop saying as a mental health affects one in four people. First of all, if you've got a heartbeat and you're listening to this, I'm hoping you do have a heartbeat, you've got physical health. If you've got a heartbeat and your brain is working right now, you've got mental health. All of you have it. You're on that spectrum somewhere. Absolutely you are. And the thing is, is that your position at that spectrum isn't fixed. You're not one in four people on that spectrum. All of you are on that spectrum and your position isn't fixed. It's really important to grasp that and it is so important for people that are struggling because you understand that you can get to better days but also do you know what let me be honest with you it's also important for you guys right now that are feeling great and fine that well I don't have mental illness it's not a problem for me because you never know the thing that will change your life and the thing that will come and bite you on the backside is not the thing you're probably worrying about all the time it's the phone call on four o'clock at four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon on a sunny day like happened to me saying this person's died in your life or this thing's happened and suddenly your whole world changes and you're and for me like you know this and I'm referring to the time that I found out my brother died by suicide I fell you know like falling through the sky and you're trying to you know find your anchor points in the days and weeks following that and I was very fortunate. I, I feel in many ways I wouldn't be here if I didn't have the understanding, the tools that I developed over the years of like, right, I know that the fundamentals for me getting myself into anywhere near a better place are these things. Yeah. You know, for me, it was literally, and it still is as true now as it was then, the walk every morning, the 45 minutes to hour walk I do every morning, the cold shower that I get as soon as I get up in the morning, I have my cold shower, I go for my, my walk, I my talking therapy, the speaking to people, the sleep, all, all these different things, or having those tools is literally there to not only help you on the difficult or bad days, or even to save you in scenarios like that and try and get you back on track, but it's to maximise your life as well. We all this, want to live a happy life, don't we? So honestly, just invest yourself in it. Yeah, and I never, I hate to interrupt, but this is exactly where I wanted to go with this because you're so right. I think often the conversation around mental health mm. and mental illness is that we only give it attention when it becomes a problem. So mm. even if you think about you know, our physical health, we're fortunate that we might not go to the doctor unless we have a illness, mm. a complaint, something that's wrong with us. We might then go, I'm going to book an appointment with my GP. And I think that when it comes to mental illness and mental health, exactly that. It's that I don't, you know, I'm, I hope that many listeners of this show may be in a place in their life where they think, I don't have mental illness. They might not describe themselves as having anxiety or experiencing depression. Great, but it doesn't mean that 
you know, often instead of going from not good to good, what about if we could go from good to great? Exactly, and better. That's you know, what I'm all we about. We have, the, the, you know, the most precious thing that we all have on this earth, the most precious thing, and the one thing you can't get back is time. That's the most precious thing you have. You have this, you know, finite resource that you need to enjoy, that you need to, you know, achieve as much as you can in your life. And I don't mean achieve as like a, a success thing or a productivity thing. Achievement could mean literally finding contentment in your life with your with your family with the people around you that could be your sense of achievement and actually i would advise it's a pretty good place to start for most people you know it, it, it is life is about living and thriving and enjoying and you know putting being in a position where you can put yourself outside of your comfort zone that you can challenge yourself that you can apply discipline so that you can push yourself to achieve things that you maybe never even dreamed of achieving what i find what I what my what I really hope for people and what I want young people to um, you know see and believe and, and to understand as they grow up is that you know you get one shot in life and I know it sounds really cliche but you really get one shot so give yourself the best opportunity of taking that shot and enjoying your life and you know fundamentally you know that book is written for everyone you know I, I really mean that you know and it's, it's actually uh, talking of discipline that's uh, the mind manual 3.0 I've been through that book and I've torn it apart and I've I've gone over it again and pushed harder and harder and harder to get it to where exactly where I want it to be it's been mm. arguably it's a lifetime in the making and mm. it's my experience together with all the, the science that's put in a way that's usable for people and genuinely uh, can be used in day to day life but it, you know also the book really is is it's there for anyone who just you know wants to get the most out of their life and their day so don't look at that book in my mind oh that's for me if i'm struggling or that's for me if i'm a bit meh it's for you if you've got mental health and, mm. and you do you've yeah, all got exactly. it and you know, live a better life live a happier life live a life that you're you know less afraid you know i want to you know i talk about a lot of things people think oh, God, that's odd. i've got a whole chapter on failure my failure is literally your best friend if you learn to fail well damn you'll be successful mm. you know if you want to be successful in life learn to fail you know it's like the thing of um we talk about you know oh and there's no losers in a race at school why do we do that oh my you gosh. know why do we do that to our children <laughs> you've got 10 kids racing there's a first person there's a last person yeah. and it teaches them a lot so the person that's winning probably learns the least actually because when you win you don't challenge yourself and mentally or question or go over things the reasons why you won as much as why you failed can i caveat mm. that though mm. sorry again i'm interrupting you which mm. i hate to do as a no, host no, no. but there's so much in sorry, here I'm just, talk and talk. no i'm jumping in because we oh my gosh so first i'm nodding my head because mm. i definitely agree and it's mm. quite a divisive thing and mm. people say to me especially as i turn mm. up at the mum's race mm. and i'm not afraid to say that mm. i'm pretty competitive yeah. at the mum's race but back to the sports day i think it's this yeah this analogy and this idea that you know there's a first and there's a last and kind of taking that away and mm. diminishing that you know people can't fail and I'm not gonna mm. uh, say any more on that the only caveat I'd say about the first place thing is that people as you said then maybe mm. coming first you learn the least mm. the only caveat I'd say about that is that for some children um, in the school experience mm. especially you know here in the UK they might not thrive in any other environment mm. or on any other day mm. so they might not get an A, they might mm. not get 10 out of 10 on the mm. spellings, they might not be good at maths. To celebrate not... achievement, absolutely. Yes, that might be the yeah. only day where they learning, actually but go... celebrate. Oh yes, and we should I, use... I did and it, it's great. exactly that point. So by saying that everyone's finished race, oh no, it's fine, you're, you're taking it away from that person who goes, mm. celebrate. And what I was going to say is really, really important. Because people go, oh yeah, but that's really unfair and the person comes last. It isn't, because I'll tell you two things. First of all, it well, the question it makes that person ask themselves, right, I came last, right, do I care? 
do I care about this? If I don't care and I don't want to get better, I've already learned something from this because this is not for me. I'm not into mm. sports races. Maybe actually I'm into engineering. Maybe I'm into art. Maybe I'm into writing and music. Maybe I'm not. In, why am I stood here on the sports pitch? I don't care about it. Or they go, damn, I'm last. And I really care. Now I'm going to work so hard to get there. My God, that person will end up first. You know, I, I, and I, 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 I was that kid, you know, in a different way. I um, applied to med school the first time round and I got my place, went through the application, got to do exams, specifically med school. There's 25 applications for every place, got to do interviews. It's hard. Mm. There's no getting away from that. I got my place at Liverpool, got to results day and I missed out by my A grade in chemistry by two marks. I had three A's and a B. So I, my fourth A, I missed up by two marks out of, I needed 480 out of 500, I missed up by two marks. I was absolutely devastated. And they said, no, you can't come in, you've missed up by two marks. I had to question myself and say, what do I do now? My mum sat me down that evening and said, what are you going to do? Do you want to just take a clear in place, do something else? Do you want to scrap it or do you want to go again? I said, ma'am, I really, really want to be a doctor. I, am, I, I, I remember sitting there and she was crying, we were crying. Said, I'm not giving up, this is not going to beat me. I'm going to do it. So I reapplied, I sorted out my coursework, I got a place and I came out with a distinction mm. for med school. So that failure made me genuinely question, mm. do you actually care? And if you care, you already know now you've got to work twice as hard. And that is one of the biggest reasons why I think trying to make everyone appear they win all the time. You're actually, you're stealing them. You're robbing children away from the opportunity of learning about how amazing failure is. Mm. You know, and when you achieve off the back of failure, because even if you are the kid that comes first all the time, you're not going to come first. There's always going to be someone faster than you, stronger than you, yep. and you're going to have to elevate yourself and do yep. better and challenge. You're going to fail at some point. And if but you can harness failure, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. incredibly powerful hearing your story saying that, especially, you know, you sat down and went, no, I really want to be a doctor. I'm I'm not going to quit. Mm. And do you think that partly your personality, there was something in eight, because I often talk about this, you know, mm. nature nurture, because I'm probably a similar vein mm. to yourself, whereas I'll set myself a goal. And if I fail, you best believe we go again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But some people, that. that isn't in that. them and they fa that. failure can it can crush them, it can make them think, you know what, I never want to feel this feeling again and mm. I'm never going to put myself out there again, I'm never going to step up to the start line again, I'm never going to feel this humiliation or this mm. crushing weight of... And, and one failure for some people can define years of never, ever trying because they're so afraid. So, yeah, do you think it is like a nature... Like, where does that come from mm. to see and experience a failure and for it to fuel you instead of destroy mm. you? I, and I think the sad truth of it is that in reality... A lot of people don't achieve their potential because of fear of failure. I had a, um, I had this professor when I started. I graduated in 2015. I started working at King's College Hospital, which was my dream hospital. And actually, I um, when I was at med school, it's off tangent, but I used to have a printed picture of King's College Hospital, which people might have remember or heard of as being one of the first hospitals with 24 hours in A and E. The show, and I had it printed and stuck on my wall because I'm a big Billy. I love affirmation. I've got tattoos and stuff with different quotes. I love affirmations. I like things that remind me why. It matters, and I looked there every day as I'm going to work in that place, and I'm going to get there, and it, that really, that really motivated me. But when I when I got there and I worked there, one of the first jobs I did was care of the elderly, it's looking after elderly people, and there was a professor there who was who was um, who's a patient, and he was at the end of his life. You know, we don't like talking about death in the UK for some reason. I tell you what, none of us get out of this alive. So I tell you what, you know, it's an odd concept, really. That's a separate conversation. But anyway, he said to me, Alex, and he's a very very smart guy. Um, they said to me, Alex, I just want to say something to you. I really want, I just feel I want to tell you something as I'm, you know, sat here now and, you know, I'm in my final kind of weeks. He said, um, you know, I'm not sat here regretting the things that I did in my life. 
you know, with a very few exceptions, he said, I'm regretting the things I didn't do. And specifically, I didn't do because I was afraid. I was afraid of being embarrassed, of looking silly, of failing or people judging me or what people thought. And that has always really stuck with me. That has really stuck with me because people often don't do things, not because they don't want to, or because they don't care, but because they're afraid. Yeah. They're afraid of what people might think, their judgment. What if I look silly? Like, oh, I don't want to go and play guitar on stage because people might think I'm rubbish. You know, it, it's it's really, really sad. And, and I think so much of that is part of the narrative that we build in school, that you know, everyone needs to be perfect. It's all about getting the top marks. It's all about, actually, you know, if you if you listen to some of the best, you know, musicians in the world, or it's the best sports athletes, you, you know, you talk to Cristiano Ronaldo, which unfortunately I'm not able to talk to him. Um, but if you if you were able to talk to Cristiano Ronaldo, he'd probably tell you you know how many times he's missed free kicks and done it over and over and over and over again to practice to get there and accepted yeah. the fact that he's going to fail over and over. And and I, and I really do feel a lot of people struggle with that. But to your question, which I've gone around uh, around the houses answering, um, I think part of it is is innate. Part of it is our genetics. We're all we all have personality traits. If you look at a litter of puppies, they'll have be different personalities from the very moment you know look at a litter of puppies you can say that's a quiet one that's a cheeky one that's you know so i think there is that but it is absolutely a huge amount of it is nurture you know my mum as i grew up um i've had I was diagnosed ADHD in my 30s, but I was definitely very different at school. Um, school wasn't an easy time uh, in many ways because of my ADHD, and I you know, just wasn't diagnosed. But mum always used to say to me at night, she said, Alex, every night she said this, all the way to I was 18, which used to really annoy me as a teenager, <laughs> Alex, you can achieve anything you want in life as long as you put your mind to it. And imagine, she said that to me every single night for eight, like, well, 18, as long as I can remember, 16, 17 years, she said that every night to me. It's going to sink in. Um, and so I really do feel that that resilience of like, you know what, whenever I get pushed back, I push on. And I'm still like that now. I mean, you know, I'm trying to achieve stuff in government. I'm trying to get funding for mental health, the mental health space. There's loads of things to do all the time that I fail at, but I, it just makes me more determined. Yeah. I think that's very yeah. much like you as yeah. well. You're just like, no, come on, yeah. push on. But you can learn for that. Very, yeah, you can very... learn that. Everyone can everyone can learn yeah. that. You know, it doesn't matter you're, you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you don't have to continue repeating the same thing mm. from before. Resilience could be built. The whole reason I wrote the book is because I believe people can develop. You mm -hmm. can learn these things. You can expose yourself to through to situations you can fail all the time. If you want to build resilience mentally and learn how to fail, go and do salsa dancing. Mm -hmm. If you've never danced before, go and do salsa lessons for 10, 12 weeks. Go and learn to sing. Do something so random you've never done before and you'll build so much confidence in the fact that, do you know what, I went and did that. I had no idea. Tripped and fell over, but I got better. And do you know what? I'm still alive. Yes. Oh, I love to hear it. And and also as a mother, it's nice to hear because I'll be honest with you, I feel like imagine being my son. Imagine mm. being my son, the things you must have to hear. <laughs> and he just kind of, I feel like it goes over his head and he probably goes, yeah, mum, I know you can do hard things. Yeah, I know in action. But because he's kind of used to it. But actually that maybe, maybe you did it that. Maybe you, maybe I you did it the whole of my, the and... whole, I remember saying to my mum once, please, ma'am, you said that. And he used to go, <laughs> I know I can do anything. You can imagine 10 year old me being like, I know I used to do it every night, but do you know what? It worked. And yeah. I still to this day, well, I'm 32 and I still, yeah. I can put myself back yeah. into that oh, bunk it's... bed and hear her saying it to me. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hear as a mother. So that is it for 2023 on the Power Hour podcast. Thank you so, so much everyone for tuning in whether you are a new listener of the show whether you are a long time listener i appreciate you and of course big shout out big love to my wonderful producer jack claremont we'll be back next year with a whole bunch of fantastic guests and new episodes
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.